All right, good afternoon, everybody. I'm going to uh, call the meeting to order for April 6th, MPO Urbanized Area Policy Board. And the first item is uh, recognizing alternates. Uh, yeah, we've got several tonight. Uh, Kelly Freeling for Sean Harmson of Iowa City, uh, Doug Bolt for Steve Berner of Tiffin, and Eric Sittig for Chris Hoffman of North Liberty, unless I'm missing any others. Thanks, everyone. Okay, welcome, everybody. Uh, the uh, next item is consider approval of the meeting minutes of January 26th. Do I have a motion? Move approval. Second. Thank you. Uh, all those in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? That motion passes. And item 1C is setting the next board meeting date, time, and location. It looks like May 25th will be the, the date. Correct. And uh, time and location to be determined. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll leave that loose just since we've got a big group and only so many meeting rooms to meet in. So. Okay. Uh, the next item is uh, public discussion of any item not on the agenda. Does anyone wish to speak on an item not on the agenda? Okay. Seeing no one. Move on to administration. 3A, consider action regarding participation in the federal aid swap whereby state funding could replace federal funding for local road bridge projects. Kent. Yeah, thanks everyone for coming. Kent Ralston, uh, Executive Director. Uh, some of you have heard this before. Uh, some of you, this might be new for you, but back in 2018, uh, House File 203 was signed into law, which permits the Iowa DOT Commission to allow what's commonly referred to as the federal aid swap, or just the swap. Uh, the swap generally is a process whereby road and bridge projects that would have typically been uh, used federal funding can instead be swapped and use uh, state funding. Uh, the goal is to minimize federal regulations and to streamline local projects uh, and save money where we can. Uh, for the past four years, the Transportation Technical Advisory Committee has unanimously recommended participating in the swap. Uh, however, after some lengthy discussions, uh, this group has ultimately voted to opt out of the swap each of those same years. Uh, of your many concerns were Davis-Bacon wages, worker safety, lack of data supporting the benefits of the swap, uh, and other concerns. Uh, currently, uh, our MPO, as well as Bi-State MPO in the Quad Cities are the only two MPOs that have been opting out of the swap, as far as I know. Uh, and similar to previous years, uh, unless our MPO chooses to opt out of the swap, the Iowa DOT is going to assume we wish to participate. So we need to go through this process again. Uh, in years past, the DOT has been unable to provide details on the cost and savings uh, related to swap projects, primarily due to the number of projects uh, that hadn't been completed yet. A lot of these projects are large projects, uh, two or three construction seasons, and then you know another year of closing those projects out. So they're just getting to the point where they're able to quantify some of, some of the savings. Uh, the DOT, however, has now provided uh, a fact sheet that was attached in your packets, uh, noting that the project development timeline had been reduced by as much as six months. And we have talked about that previously. Uh, what we had not talked about is they've actually put a savings to that now, uh, which was about $7.4 million annually. Uh, for local agencies and the DOT um, combined. Uh, I have also attached in your packet the meeting minutes from March 21, uh, as well as the Iowa DOT's final swap policy language uh, for your reference. And please keep in mind that the swap can only be for our surface transportation block grant funds, which is our big pool of funding. 
uh, primarily that goes to road and bridge projects, uh, not our transportation alternative program funding, which is what we typically use for uh, trails. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions about the swap before we get into the discussion on how, how you feel and your local jurisdictions feel. Uh, I do want to mention, however, that we, we're going through this tonight because we have a, a timeline that we have to keep on for our transportation improvement program. So the decision we make tonight then, whether we're participating or not participating, will then be um, used in programming our actual projects for our TIP, our transportation improvement program. That draft is due uh, to you all at the end of May, so we're kind of keeping on this schedule. However, the DOT has a committee they've put in place right now that will meet in about two weeks to discuss whether or not MPOs will continue to be able to use uh, the swap at all. So we need to go through this process regardless, but it may be that even if we chose to opt in, we might not actually be able to opt in uh, because that swap might go away for MPOs. The reason being with the new federal transportation legislation being so large, uh, the amount of federal funding being so large that's gonna come to the state of Iowa, the state simply doesn't have enough state funding to actually swap those federal funds. Um, there's something like a $50 million uh, shortfall there. And that committee has already met once and has some MPO directors on it as well. Um, but the committee's already met once and that was their recommendation was to make all MPO projects federal aid, which is what we are currently doing, uh, that federal aid process. Um, and then again, as I mentioned, they'll meet in about two weeks' time and, and hopefully make a final recommendation. So um, I'm happy to answer any questions about the swap that you might have, uh, but keep in mind that regardless of what we decide tonight, um, it's ultimately up to the DOT on whether or not we can participate. Anyone have any questions for Kent? And do we have anyone from the public who would like to speak on this issue? I think we do. Welcome. Good afternoon. I'm Bill Gerhardt. I'm a longtime Johnson County resident. I just finished a 13-year tour of duty as president of the Iowa State Building and Construction Trades Council, and this has been on our agenda for all those years. It's a scheme that the state put forward to try to save some money off the backs of workers. Uh, they're trying to avoid two federal laws. One is the Davis-Bacon Act, which requires that certain payments get paid to workers, mechanics, and laborers on construction jobs funded by the federal government. The other is the Buy American Act, which requires to buy American steel and other products if possible. So what they're hoping to do is by getting rid of these safety nets for workers, that they can save enough, I guess, enough money to build one more, one more box culvert that year. But it's it's a scheme. It's a bad scheme, and this really came home to me a couple years ago when I was coming back from uh, up north, Manchester, I think it was. I was on a, a county a farm to market road, and they were doing work there. And I was the front. We've all had this happen, I'm sure. I'm in the front car. There's a flagger there, traffic stop, waiting for the pilot car. I roll the window down, I'm talking to the flagger, and I, you know, I'm just talking to him. I said, uh, who do you work for? And he told me who you work for. I said, what do they pay you? And he says, well, in this job, I get $10 an hour. He says, but our next job we're going to is a federal job, and I'll get $26 an hour. And we all know Davis Bacon, the, the total package is $26 an hour, and if you don't have 
health, if they don't pay for health insurance and retirement, then you get it all in the check. So that's the difference for workers out there. $10 an hour if it's state money, $26 an hour if you're lucky enough to be on a federal job. And that just made me even more, more resolved to uh, make sure that at least Johnson County opts out of this, opts out of this. So I encourage you to, uh, to vote to opt out. And thank you for your time. All right. Um, any discussion on this item? Well, I'll start um, since I've <clears throat> I've been pretty outspoken about this program since it was first presented to us. Uh, I had concerns then, and I, I still have concerns. Some of which uh, Mr. Gerhardt has, has pointed out. It it's it's no secret that I'm uh, that organized labor has been a major part of my life for a number of years. So I've I've followed unions, union contracts, and union wages, and and uh, as he's said, uh, there's quite a difference between $10 an hour or even $12 an hour. And then I, I wasn't sure I was going to quote 20, but he says, you know, he's been, he's heard $26 an hour on federal projects. There's a major difference. And I'll quote uh, in the first paragraph of what we've gotten. Um, let's see, it says, if I can find it here. Projects are swapped with the goal of minimizing federal regulations and streamlining local projects. And by that, I mean, is their ultimate intent that federal regulation of the Davis-Bacon Act, which, of course, uh, Mr. Gerhardt mentioned that as far as that federal projects. Uh, that's been since 1931, I believe. It's been a long time in the process, and it was to protect those workers. We all want workers, whether union or not, to have livable wages. Uh, and, and there's a difference in the prevailing wage and what um, some of these construction companies pay. And that's, you know... Thank you to the people who gave us the data on the number of uh, days saved and the amount of money saved, But because uh, we kind of asked that. But what also I was getting at is, well, so how much are they paying their workers? What what companies are they utilizing, and, and what are they getting paid? Are they getting prevailing wage, or are they saving all this money because they're only paying 10 or $12 an hour? So uh, I'd, I'd kind of like an answer to, um, to that question uh, before I would... Uh, even approve this. So at this point in time, I, I would uh, vote to opt out. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, uh, I'd also like to advocate that we opt out of the swap. As uh, labor at one of our area asphalt road construction firms some years ago, when we worked on these sorts of projects, we referred to them as high pay jobs. And you know, as somebody who busted his back pushing the hot black sticky stuff around, the high pay jobs seem to be the only ones that even approved valuing our labor for what it cost us. Those jobs also permeated the culture within the workforce there, raising the expectation, not only in the wages that we would receive, but also in following federal laws and the regulations and being safer on the workplace. So I'd urge everyone to consider that. Thank you. Any other comments? All right, I'm, I'm gonna, I think the uh, way I'd like to structure this would be to ask for a motion to opt out of the federal aid swap. So move, Taylor, Iowa City. Second. All right. Um, 
All those in favor of opting out, say aye. 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 All those in favor of opting in. Aye. Aye. All right. Sounds like we have two, two in opposition and the rest in favor, so the motion passes. Uh, we'll move on to uh, transportation planning. Uh, item A there is consider approval of the locally determined projects, projects list for the MPOJC fiscal year 2023 transportation planning work program, and that's with Kent. Yeah, thanks. This is a little bit easier one. Uh, each spring, we compile a list of transportation planning work program projects for the upcoming fiscal year. Uh, while the exercise is required by the Federal Highway Administration and the Iowa Department of Transportation, uh, internally, we use this to collect data and schedule our work uh, for the following fiscal year. Uh, in your packets was an attachment that lists the work program projects that we have received to date from your staffs. Um, and I usually say at this time that what you see on the list of projects probably represents about a quarter of the work we actually do in any given year. Uh, and that said, uh, we're aware that other projects will come up throughout the year, uh, and most of the time we're able to satisfy those requests. Uh, if there's any large work program projects that would disrupt uh, our other work, then we would typically bring that back to this board for, for approval prior to moving forward. Uh, what we'd like from you today is that you please review the list of attached projects and let staff know of any questions or clarifications you have. Uh, we then augment the list with uh, any additional federal requirements that we have uh, and regularly recurring projects, and then we'll bring back the full work program to you for approval uh, at your next meeting. Uh, the Transportation Technical Advisory Committee unanimously recommended approval uh, of the list at their meeting next week, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. It's hard when I contact your staffs and ask them for projects for the next fiscal year for them to be able to provide me what they would like the MPO to work on, as you can imagine. So uh, they do the best they can. A lot of this is repeat type projects, uh, and that's why I'd mentioned that this you know, represents really a fraction of the work we'll end up doing. But um, you know, any given week, certainly any given week, uh, notwithstanding today, I've talked to someone from most of your staffs, so we're in good communication. But I'm happy to answer any questions about the projects that are on the list, uh, if there are any. Any questions for Kent? Hearing none, I'd, I'd like to consider a, a motion approving the locally determined projects list. So moved. Seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any in, opposed? Motion passes. Thank you. Item B is consider a resolution approving participation in the Iowa DOT pavement data collection program, and that's with Emily. Thank you. Emily Bothell, Senior Associate Transportation Planner. In January, I updated the board on the DOT pavement data collection program and whether to opt in as an MPO to continue receiving local pavement data on a two-year cycle. As a reminder, since 2013, the DOT has been providing this data for our local roads every two years, but due to increasing costs and competing priorities, they're no longer able to do that. As such, local route data is now being collected every four years, so this is for our local city streets. Um, and the DOT will allow agencies, either at the MPO level or local jurisdiction level, to opt in to continue that two-year cycle. Data was last collected on all roads in our area in 21. And so um, today we are asking um, whether or not the board is interested in opting in for the next year data collection cycle in 23. 
the Transportation Technical Advisory Committee unanimously recommended to opt in as an MPO to purchase pavement condition data for next year. Um, if the board chooses to opt in, um, STBG funding would be utilized in order to pay for this. Um, for context, the cost is approximately $50,000 out of the $7 million or so that we apportion every two years. Um, so we are asking the board to consider the attached resolution approving participation in the pavement data collection for 2023. Yeah, and I would just mention, so as it as it's named, the data collection is actually, or the, the pavement condition data is actually that of pavement conditions. So your staffs to, and various communities use it in different ways, some a little bit more, some a little bit less, uh, but it is what it is. It's actual condition of the pavement and most of the jurisdictions will use that to of course then figure out uh, what your capital needs are for the following year or following years for resurfacing, reconstruction, rehabilitation. Any questions for Kent or Emily? Um, Emily, in the memo, it has the estimated costs for 2020 at about $41,248. You said about 50000 Is that just the difference between 2020 and 2022? Correct. Okay. Um, they weren't able to give us a final dollar amount for 2023, so um, we're just estimating it would go up by you know $10,000 or so. Thank you. It looks like it's about $100 a mile if, if I was... That's correct, yeah. yeah. So, so this, and yeah, that's correct. So it's actually, um, you know, it's, it's no small amount of money, but it is about $50,000 out of about the 7 million or so uh, that we'll allocate through our STBG process. So relatively small in the scheme of things, but it is still uh, a fair amount of money and that's why we bring it to the board for your approval. And one other item to know is that um, this funding, if approved, would need to be swapped. So this funding is federal funding, and federal funding cannot be used on local routes. So this funding, this $50,000 or so, would need to be swapped in order for us to pay for um, the data collection. So and so, so it's one little, sorry, it's one little caveat in the swap. Um, but like Emily mentioned, they, they, we can't use our SDBG funds on local roadways. So the DOT will swap this one so that we can use the, the, the funding. And, and different than most of the swap discussion we just had is that's for construction projects where this is actually a service provided. It's, it's sort of like the little uh, Google van you see driving around every once in a while with all the, the gadgets on it. And the DOT went through the RFP process, um, project and contracting, and they selected a vendor through that for the next six years. Okay, I'd like to uh, ask for a motion to approve, in this case, opting in uh, to the, uh, the pavement data collection program. So moved, Louise. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Any opposed? Motion passes. Thank you. Uh, the next item, uh, update regarding the MPO JC fiscal year 2023 transit program, transit program of projects. That's Frank. Hi, Frank Weiss, Associate Transportation Planner. <clears throat> Uh, each year, the three local transit agencies are required by the FDA to develop a program of projects, um, which are included for, um, in your packet. 
this program of projects is eventually included in the, each agency's consolidated transit funding application and then eventually into our transportation improvement program, which will be approved or seen by the board later this summer. <clears throat> this list identifies projects to be funded um, with proposed projects to be funded with federal funds. Not all of the projects included on the lists will be um, funded, but they must be included to be eligible for federal funds. Uh, I've worked with the transit managers from all three of our systems to determine uh, their desired buses and facilities and projects that are in each of these lists. Um, nothing needs to be approved by the board this evening, but seeing as it is federal funds, we uh, provide you this update so that you're aware of how it's being spent. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions. No questions? Okay. Thank you. Thanks. The next item is update on the MPO JC Long Range Transportation Plan revision process with Emily. Yeah, Emily's going to give a presentation. Um, so if you need to, feel free to shuffle around a little bit. It should be maybe 10 or 15 months. Is everyone able to see the slide okay? All right. So our future forward connecting communities long range transportation plan draft is now complete. Um, this plan is a vision for our metro area and I've been giving presentations to this board for the last two years and so we are excited that we are nearing the end. Um, I'm going to give a brief presentation as, as Kent mentioned on the plan's contents um, and we'll provide time at the end for any comments or questions. So as with the previous plan, this is an update emphasizing multimodal transportation, um, the coordination of land use patterns and transportation planning. I'm going to touch on the planning process and timeline, our public engagement efforts, a few highlights from the plan, and then talk about our next steps in terms of um, public participation and comment. We are required to update this plan every five years, um, and it typically takes us, as I mentioned, two years to complete. We draft the plan content in-house and also the design, and luckily we have great staff um, that are skilled to do this. Sarah Walls um, on staff does all the plan layout um, and the infographics for us, and Frank Wayseth um, created and um, put together all of our maps. As you can see, we um, started this planning process with the presentation of the vision, goals, and performance measures. And as we drafted content, we asked for public feedback along the way. We are in the final stretch of the planning process, and we have two upcoming public meetings, one being tomorrow night at 6 p.m. and the other next week at noon. We will be asking the board for final approval of this plan at your May meeting. This is a summary of the efforts undertaken to gather public input on the plan. We solicited for public input through a variety of media, including an online survey. Um, we had mode-specific virtual um, public input meetings. We did an online interactive project map. Um, we shared information via social media on our website and then through press releases as well. 
I'm going to touch on these features from the plan, but know that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Johnson County is one of the fastest growing counties in the state, and Tiffin and North Liberty are two of the fastest growing communities in Iowa. So this rapid growth brings many challenges, but also opportunities for our metro area. And if you're interested in learning more about that and how it impacts the region, feel free to check out the plan. Um, the link for the plan document is on our webpage under the Long Range Transportation Plan page. So the graph here um, compares the population growth of two five-year periods. I wanted to point out that Tiffin's population, as you can see, grew by 131% since 2010, making it the fastest growing community in the state. North Liberty also continues to see rapid growth, um, whereas Iowa City, um, Coralville are pretty constant. As this is a long-range plan, um, we develop population projections based on linear growth trends from 2010 to 2019. Based on these trends, the share of metro population residing in Iowa City by 2050 is expected to decrease, while North Liberty's proportion of the population is expected to increase. You can see there from 15.5% to 22%. Similarly, Tiffin is expected to increase um, from 2.5% of the proportion to seven. Um, the long-range planning, um, the long-range transportation plan is an essential tool for ensuring that um, our transportation network can meet the demands of our growing population out to 2050. Vehicle miles traveled. Um, this helps us understand generally how trends in vehicle use and congestion can change over time. And at the local level, as you can see, Tiffin and North Liberty um, has, have seen an increase in VMT as a result of their increase in population. Um, the second graph shows Metro VMT by year, and you can see we've had a general trend upward, um, but with the COVID-19 pandemic in 2019, we saw a sharp decrease in VMT in 2020. This is a very interesting slide, we think. Um, so the slide here represents commuting patterns between Johnson County and our nearby counties. Many metro area residents live in one community but choose to work in another community, um, which um, requires them to commute. Nearly 40,000 workers that are employed in Johnson County live outside of the county. So this means that on a daily basis, we have roughly 40,000 people that are coming into the county for work. On the flip side, nearly 22,000 workers that live in Johnson County commute outside of the county for work. So this also impacts our transportation network. A lot of times I think we you know, only think about who's here, the housing population, but really we have um, a large number of people coming in and out on a daily basis that do not live here. We are also able to show trends in our region's performance measures, and I'll share performance measures for system preservation and safety, but there are more perform performance measures in the plan. This image is simply for reference. Um, are you able to see the information all right? A little bit, okay. So our metro region has seen improvements in our bridge condition and the percentage of pavement that's measured at fair or better condition. Um, and then you can see we have multiple new measures that we hope to track over time just to measure progress um, within our transportation system. When we look at safety, our region has also seen an increase or a decrease, I'm sorry, in the number of motor vehicle fatalities. 
That said, the number of serious injury accidents has increased along with non-motorized fatalities and injuries. So these are injuries involving bikes and pedestrians. These accidents, though, keep in mind, are primarily occurring along highways um, where there may not be a facility or a paved shoulder available, um, or only a paved shoulder. Um, again, these measures help us evaluate our region's transportation network, whether we're making those improvements. Moving on to mode-specific content, um, the 587-mile um, centerline center miles that we have um, across our network is the backbone of our system. And between FY18 and 21, over $19 million in federal surface transportation block grant funding was spent here locally to support our network, um, maintain it, and then expand it. This map shows the road and bridge projects that were submitted by the Transportation Technical Advisory Committee, subsequently approved by the Policy Board, and then they're expected to be completed in the 2022 to 2030 timeframe. All approved projects through 2050 that are noted in the plan are eligible to receive federal funding. I don't have maps for the next two timeframes, so it'd be the 2031 to 2040 and then 2041 to 2050, but those are available in the plan um, for your reference. This map here shows the anticipated congestion across the metro during the AM peak hours, so typically your 7, 7.30 to 8, 8.30 timeframe in 2050. So this is with the existing um, roadway network that we have, the committed projects that already have funding and are slated to be completed, and then those planned road projects that are in our transportation plan. So on an average weekday in 2050, the average vehicle miles traveled per household is 60, and then the number of person trips per household is about 15. Additional congestion maps are available in the plan, and this is just one example of um, information that we can share and things that we can look at with our travel demand model, which was updated um, coincident with the long-range transportation plan. Moving on to the bike and pedestrian network, um, increasing active transportation is an important goal for the metro area. And the metro area now has 65 miles of off-street facilities and another 63 miles of wide side paths adjacent to roadways. Iowa City now also has more than 15 miles of roadway that have um, bike facilities on them. The bike and pedestrian projects shown on this map are the projects that are anticipated to be completed between 2022 and 2050. So we were able to get all of the projects on one map um, for the bike and pedestrian projects. Um, there is a shortfall. So the bike and pedestrian project funding shortfall is 19 million. So those illustrative projects at the bottom, they are 18 through 22. Um, based on our projected um, federal funding, out to 2050, we reasonably um, would be unable to get those projects completed in this time frame, considering funding. We included this map in the plan, um, which shows the identified gaps and existing or planned facilities that provide for the crossing of significant obstacles for bikes and pedestrians. You can see that we've made significant progress to get people across these barriers, but there, there are certainly still some gaps. So primarily along the Highway 218 corridor, 
um, I-80 corridor. In Iowa City, there's the Highway 16 Riverside intersection there, the bridge crossing the Iowa River. Um, so there's still some progress to be made. Um, that being said, in the next five years, a planned trail link will be constructed to extend the Clear Creek Trail between Coralville and Tiffin there, um, allowing people access all the way out to Kemp Park someday. Regarding passenger transportation, um, between 2017 and 2022, there were a number of successes. So you can see our area received 26 new buses, um, including four electric buses for the city of Iowa City. A mobility coordinator was hired. Three passenger rail studies were completed and discussion regarding that is ongoing. And then the Iowa City Area Transit Study was completed with the goal to increase ridership, um, provide for better um, collaboration amongst the tra transit agencies, and then provide for um, better communication to riders. This graph shows metro area transit ridership between 1994 and 2020. You can see ridership or increased dramatically between 2008 and 2014 during the Great Recession. Then as the economy recovered and gas prices fell, ridership declined. Um, the onset of COVID-19 brought um, a dramatic decline in ridership again, um, more than 40% lower than the peak years of 2013 to 2015. So how and when that will recover is to be determined, um, as well as the impact that COVID has on our general transportation network and travel patterns. As far as our next steps, as I mentioned, we plan to host two virtual public input opportunities, um, one being tomorrow night, one next week. We opened up our 30-day public input um, period on April 1st, and so we're asking the public to provide feedback. And then, again, we will bring this plan to the board in May for final adoption. So we'll try to incorporate any feedback we receive um, and then bring it back to you all. And this is just, it just touches the surface of, of everything that's in the plan. Um, any questions, comments? Yeah, Emily chose about 15 pages out of a 150 some odd page document that she thought would be most interesting as this group just for a snapshot. Um, but I would definitely encourage you to check out the plan. Like Emily said, we've, we're in our 30 day formal public uh, comment period right now. Um, and as she mentioned, this is the culmination of about a two year process, uh, at least 18 months of doing a lot of heavy lifting. And I gotta say, I'm really proud of the, the staff for doing uh, all the, the work on this really. And most, I, I wouldn't say most, but many MPOs across the state and then regional planning affiliations, which are the rural uh, equivalent of an MPO, they hire these out. Uh, we've always chosen to do, it, do them in-house uh, because we feel like we have a better feel for you know, what our community is and uh, the assets we have and that sort of thing, so. Any That's great that it is in-house. Um, it's yeah. really impressive. One, one question I had was um, vehicle miles per capita. Is, how is that? Do you have a, a sense of how that is trending? So I can look back at the performance measures, but we are, we're up. It's up um, as compared to the last couple years. Um, over time, just off the top of my head, I don't recall. Mm -hmm. But that information, I believe, is in the plan. Okay. Yeah. I realize you're just starting to get some of this feedback, but mm -hmm. is there any feedback that staff has gotten to this point that seems consistent? Is there one thing that's jumping out any place that everybody's talking about or something we should 
put on our radar. We get a lot of feedback about bike and pedestrian related projects, but I don't think there's been anything where it's reoccurring kind of year over year. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, in all honesty, we've struggled to get public input, as many of you can imagine from your various plans uh, for your organizations. Uh, we do struggle a little bit. Um, yeah, I agree with Emily. The, the one group that seems to come out and um, have a lot to say, positive or negative, is the bike and ped groups uh, over the last few years. Um, otherwise, the, some of the, I would say, the little public input we've got thus far has all been positive in terms of the plan, the look and the feel of the plan. Um, which again, kudos to staff because that's the goal is to have folks actually be able to review the plan, read the plan and understand it. So uh, we try to put as many visualization, uh, you know, use as many visualization techniques as we can. Lots of maps, lots of charts, lots of graphs, because uh, folks just don't have time for a 150 page document, which we understand. So, um, but yeah, I can't, I don't know about any other real trends, Rod. Usually when we get to the actual project implementation stage is when, right, when it's sort of in your backyard is when we get the, the comments. But, you know, it, it's, it was always counterintuitive to me when I started doing this 15 years ago. But, you know, the, the wider your net, you feel like you'd get more comment, but it really isn't until you get down to the specific items, right, when you really start to hear from folks. So, The, the person trips per household being about 15, is that on a daily basis? Did I interpret yes. that correctly? Just curious how, what that includes and how, how are you coming to that? conclusion that seems super high yes so that's that's based on the socioeconomic data that we include in our travel demand model so it's population it's households it's employment um, the current network and how um, easy it is for people to get from point A to point B but then also just taking into account um, housing units and um, uh, people per housing unit okay. so considering the number of trips that a, an average person would make um, from their home, say, to work. Um, and then there are other trips, like um, non-home-based work trips, where you're going from um, your home to shopping, shopping to a friend's house, or whatever the case may be. So there are multiple trips that um, are accounted for um, and considered in that. It's interesting when you think about the generation per household. It's just a large number. Mm -hmm. caught my attention. So thank you. Yeah, and there's more information about um, like person trips and just um, general travel demand model um, inputs in the plan. Okay. And these are vehicle trips we're talking Correct. About. Yeah, with the dynamic strong transit options that we have in town, it's just surprising and we're, we're somewhat dense, right? Especially in the Iowa City area. So yeah, we think the student population would have a very low number of trips. Yeah, and unfortunately, Aaron, as you know, as the, the graph shows, as our as our passenger rides are yeah. sort of plummeting, that household trips is going to go up as well. Yeah. yeah, we're sort of heading the wrong direction. I know, right? Unfortunately. Any other questions or comments? Okay, thank you. Thank you. So we've got 30 days approximately before we'll bring it back to you. Reach out to any of our staff at any time. We're happy to walk you through it. We can come give presentations uh, to any of your groups, whether it's your actual organization or whether it's a social group or a church group or anything else. So let us know if you if you want a presentation or any more information. Okay. Our last, well, not last item, but the last report is um, the update on the local trail counts in the urbanized area with Sarah. 
Hi, Sarah Walls, Associate Transportation Planner. As most of you probably know, each year uh, the MPO does counts along um, our system of trails. Um, these are done with automatic devices that can't tell the difference between bicyclists and pedestrians. So the trips, per, the average trips per day that we're showing in the charts that, you know, is gonna be a mix of the two. Certainly where, when we're in more outlying areas, it probably skews more toward bicyclists than pedestrians. Um, Various factors do affect the counts. These are typically short counts of one or two weeks. And so if we hit bad weather or if there's a closure nearby, that can um, impact the count. So it's hard to simply year over year um, see a trend, but over a longer time period, and we've been measuring for over a decade now, um, we can start to see trends along trails. It also impacts as um, you have more connections to trails, uh, people are getting on and off in different locations, and that can um, impact the counts as well. So you have those um, graphs in, in the memo that we provided. Um, you'll recall that in 2022 and, and throughout 2021, um, our counts were way up. Uh, people really turned to the trails, and as Kent was saying in the long-range transportation plan, we really heard from people about how much the trails meant to them. And obviously, with a lot of children home from school, people working at home, trail usage, excuse me, was way up. And also when our um, various recreation facilities and, and indoor opportunities were really closed down. So um, they were a savior for a lot of people. And, and that's a direct quote from, from somebody who provided feedback in one of our surveys. Um, in 2020, we also began counting during the winter because you'll remember um, our, a number of our um, communities uh, were clearing more trails during that time to account for, for the need for those trails. And, um, and we were promoting the trails through our Trails to Table Challenge. So um, we began doing more um, winter counts. Um, so we're seeing continued use of the trails. Um, it's, it, you know, we backed off a little bit from those peaks, um, but continued use in the winter and some of our trails were used just as much this past winter as they were during the peak of the pandemic. You can see that in the counts for Waterworks Prairie Park and the True Blood Rec area. Um, you'll also see in the plans, and we've put some notes there, um, impacts of new development. So the counts were really up um, in the Iowa River landing area and um, along the Sycamore Greenway. Um, promotion, heavy neighborhood promotion of that trail also I think probably has something to do with that. Um, and also um, for that Iowa River Landing area, if any of you have not checked it out, there's the new trail connection that runs from um, Rocky Shore Drive over to Coralville, um, following along next to the Crandick Railroad. It's a really um, exceptional connection. And when they did the trail opening, in fact, um, <laughs> it was interrupted regularly by bicyclists and pedestrians <laughs> coming over the trail. So if you have not checked out that trail, check it out, because it makes a, for a very convenient and safe route um, for people to sort of bypass that um, section of, of uh, 2nd Street. Um, in the next, um, like I said, we've traditionally done one or two week counts. We've acquired a uh, couple of new counters. So now we're gonna um, take a different approach and we're gonna leave our counters out for a longer period of time, um, more than a month, in some cases two or three months at a time. And we're also gonna focus in now that um, we have our two regional trails, um, the Iowa River Corridor Trail and the Clear Creek Trail. Um, in the case of the Clear Creek, Clear Creek Trail, it's nearing completion 
as far as the metro area is concerned with that future connection that's going to go under the interstate. Um, so we're going to focus on Clear Creek and on the Iowa River Corridor Trail this year, leaving the trail counters in place for a long time. Um, Johnson County has a couple of trail counters, and so we're going to work with Brad Friedhoff to be counting out in the rural areas of those trails as well um, with the idea that um, we are really entering um, a period of time when Johnson County is going to be really attractive for bicycle tourism. We have a lot of features here, um, not just the, tra the, the paved trails, but the um, single track and cyclocross trails and the gravel roads. And um, if you haven't been paying attention, you will be soon because our bicycle advocacy groups um, and, our, and our bike riding groups are really getting active and really pushing the tourism angle. So this is going to help with that. And, um, and we will come back to the other trails next year and also if communities have the need for a special count, we always can do special counts for people. So um, we're happy to do that. Um, also following along with the tourism angle, we are now um, signed up for something called um, Strava Metro. Strava is an app that um, particularly avid bicyclists add um, to their smartphones and their um, garments and things like that to, to um, track their training and their riding. Um, like I said, it does skew to the more avid, the fitness rider, the more heavy duty recreational rider. So it certainly shouldn't be considered representative of all um, bicyclists and, um, and uh, pedestrians or, or runners. Um, but we will have access to that data and it's useful to see those areas that people are heavily using. Um, it can also give us an idea of whether those um, users are, we can separate out the bicyclists and the pedestrian runners, um, and we can also see um, which people are coming in from out of the area, so tourists, visitors, and those were really up during COVID too. So we're going to use that to supplement our count data. So it's just another tool that we have to measure use. Any questions for Sarah? Interesting, thank you. Um, do you have any idea how electric bikes, the market for electric bikes is doing? Um, I can only anecdotally say that I know more and more people that are using them and you see them with more frequency as they pass you by when you're pedaling really hard and that person isn't. But I assume that they're doing well because we've had new retailers open up, new places are using them, so. Because it, it does seem with, you know, the. This extensive trail system, which isn't all flat, right? Um, mm -hmm. Electric bikes would just be a huge. Advantage. I I see them even out in front of City Hall. You see people riding by them. I think the other thing they're really useful for in the the sense of commuters is, um, you know, even just getting from the east side of the river to the west. If you work at the hospital or points further west, um, it's a bit hilly, and the the e-bike just makes it easier. But yeah, we don't have any way to track that, but it sure seems like we're seeing more of them anecdotally. And I, and I do think, uh, if not all our communities, at least the larger communities, Sarah, have explicitly permitted uh, motorized bikes on our trail system now. Is that correct? I was, at at I one was, point, they were considered a motorized vehicle, and then they got kind of hung up in the... Iowa City has. I'm, I'm not sure about the other communities. We reviewed that as part of the Metro <clears throat> Bike Plan, encouraging people to update their codes. I think most have, not that it would likely cause an issue, but most have followed through with that. Well, yeah, because we've usually tried to be the same between mm -hmm. Iowa City Corridor and the yeah. county, at least, yep. to make sure that those are, yeah. Yep. 
Speaking, I just have a question that I'm kind of new, so maybe mm -hmm. this is all um, already been discussed, but I think about winter maintenance. And in Corval, that's probably one of the biggest things that is talked is they would, you know, everyone would like all the trails cleared right away every morning it snows. Have you discussed any of those there? How do you do that? Well, Iowa City um, has traditionally done, or for the last several years, I should say, um, clears routes that serve as commuter routes. So they don't clear everything. Um, but, but now most trails, I think, are cleared. I know in Coralville, the Clear Creek Trail isn't cleared. And that has to do with the wetlands. And that um, I don't know if it's a preference or a requirement that they not use um, de-icer. Um, so I know that that's an exception there, but they do groom that area for use by fat tire bikes. Um, yeah, they groom that for cross-country and fat tire bikes, uh, Coralville does. And then the city of Iowa City during COVID actually uh, cleared more trails. I think there was a decision to actually clear more trails uh, because we knew folks needed to get out and recreate because uh, indoor facilities were closed. So more and more communities are, Lori. Uh, so it's a choice. It's up to the cities. Correct. Yeah, I mean, yep. I realized that, but I wondered if yep. we could And it's a huge undertaking, as you can imagine, but most of our communities are plowing, it seems like, most of the major corridors. Um, I think most of the communities are also focusing on school routes, so if they believe it to be a heavily used uh, route by children, they'll go ahead and plow those as well. So um, I'm a relatively avid rider, and I ride most of the winter, and I, most trails are plowed, it seems like to me, most of the major trails. Thank you. Yep. The situation might be the same with Muddy Creek. I'm not sure if that trail, if all of it can be plowed because of wetlands, that might be the other one that's an exception. All right, thanks. Item five, other business? Uh, yeah, I'll jump in quick uh, before anybody else. I just have two quick things. Uh, one is that you may have noticed, and several folks uh, mentioned this to me, there was no formal agenda item tonight on the Cranick passenger rail, no update. Uh, that was on purpose. Uh, the board, you all gave me direction at our last meeting, basically kind of keep keep the motion going, keep some momentum. Um, I did, as a quick update, uh, have individual conversations with the city managers in North Liberty, Coralville, and Iowa City. Uh, I hadn't yet reached out to the university and the county. I think I, for the most part, know where the county stands and just haven't quite got to the university yet. Um, I was waiting to hear back from Crandick Railroad. I actually had some questions for them, and I just heard back uh, the week before last, and I've also had some discussions with Iowa DOT uh, about a rail abandon the rail abandonment process, which if we were to move uh, towards that bus rapid transit type system, uh, the rails would obviously had to, would likely come out, uh, and there's a whole process to that. So we're, we're waiting to hear back from the DOT uh, on some more information about the rail abandonment process, and then I actually have a, um, the city managers that I mentioned that I did talk to, we actually are huddling up together uh, next week to have a discussion. Uh, so on your next board agenda, I'll have a formal agenda item again and give you all an update uh, on where we're at and hopefully have some, potentially even some de decision points to make. We'll see what happens. Uh, the second thing, uh, and I'm happy to answer your questions about that, but the second thing real quick as well, uh, I did want to mention that we have a new staff member uh, with the MPO, Hannah Neal. Uh, joined us. Uh, she replaced Brad Newman that retired at the end of last year. Uh, Hannah has some experience with MPOs. She worked with the MPO in Sioux City for a few years. Uh, she's an alum of the School of Planning and Public Affairs. Uh, 
I always have to get that right because it's changed since I went through it. So she has her graduate degree from the University of Iowa, and she also grew up in Coralville. So we're in good hands with Hannah, and we're very happy to have her. Welcome. That's it for me. Any, any uh, other questions or comments? Okay, I'd entertain a motion to adjourn. Mr. Chairman, move to adjourn. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed. Thank you, everyone. Good to see you. Our adjourn. Thank you. Thank you.